Hello and welcome to the RBC Broadview Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoy this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. Well, good morning. How are you going? Now I can see you. I like that. <laughs> I like that. Welcome to church. It's great to worship with you this morning. Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Chris Bishop. And it's my privilege to share God's word with you today. I really hope I don't trip over Jono's stuff as I potentially move around. We'll see how we go. For those of you who have been here the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we're in the middle of a series called Broken Signposts. And these broken sign, so-called broken signposts are echoes of God. We're going to be looking at the thirst for spirituality today. And we all know we've got one, don't we? We all know that deep within us, there is a thirst for, sp- for spirituality. A thirst, a knowledge that there must be something more than physics and chemistry. There must be something more than just atoms, mustn't there? We know that deep within us. So you recall two weeks ago, Chris did justice to justice. Last week, Rachel made a beautiful job of our longing for beauty. And this morning, as I said, I'm going to talk about our thirst for spirituality. That that is a minor miracle. Thank you, Brownie. Note to self, don't put white text on light-coloured background and expect people to be able to read it. So when I put the rest up, please take a a little moment, you'll be able to focus, hopefully you'll be able to read what I've got up there. So this morning, thirst for spirituality. I want to address three points. Three points. The first one is, it will come up miraculously. What is the best explanation for our thirst for spirituality? Why have we got it? And I'll spend not too long on that, and the second one is, what are two common ways that people try to satisfy their spiritual thirst? The third one is, what can both explain it and satisfy our spiritual thirst? Got that? Best explanation. Two ways we try really hard to do it and what I think can best explain it and best satisfy it. So I have a question for you. What are the two basic worldviews? Someone be brave. The two basic, like really high level. What are the two basic worldviews we have? And we've had since time memorial. I'll give you a clue. One starts with A and one starts with T. Theism, thank you, Andrew. Theism over here. The one that starts with A. Thank you. Well done. (laughs) so to state the obvious God either exists or he doesn't he either exists 
or he doesn't. There's no middle ground, is there? So atheism, in case you don't know, atheism is defined by the Oxford Dictionary as a disbelief or a lack of belief in God or gods. That's what atheism is. Theism is the opposite. It is a belief in the existence of God. So over here, a belief in the existence of God or gods. So let's explore briefly, is atheism a good explanation for our thirst for spirituality? Is it? So atheism would generally say that only physical matter exists. There really is only physics and chemistry buzzing around. There's only atoms. There's nothing beyond that. And that we humans are created by an unguided process. We're created with no purpose whatsoever. On atheism, there is no transcendence. There is no supernatural. There is no purpose beyond what we can create for ourselves. And there is no life after death. So if this natural life is all we've got, there's nothing beyond ourselves. My logic tells me, and I hope you, your logic does too, that atheism's not a very good explanation for spiritual thirst, is it? It can't explain it, because there's nothing beyond ourselves and what we physically see. There is no supernatural. I'll quote to you from one of the most famous atheists there's ever been, Richard Dawkins. Anyone heard of him? Yeah, listen to this. If I was clever enough, I would have had it up there. But listen, listen carefully to this. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. DNA neither cares nor knows. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Wow. That's the point of view that you have to come to if atheism is true. But if Dawkins is right, then why? Why have we got this longing in our heart for something beyond ourselves? So... Your Honour, I submit to you, it's because theism is true. And not just theism broadly. I want to bring it down to the God of the Bible. Think about it logically. If the God, as the Bible describes, is true, if God is indeed our Creator, and He made us in His image, and He designed us with a purpose... And that purpose is to worship and serve him, to abide in him, to be permanently joined to him, to be dependent fully on his mercy and grace. If that's true, then doesn't it make sense that we have a spiritual thirst? It does to me. I hope it does to you. So, very quickly, I haven't proved anything to you, I know. I've just explained the two worldviews and what I think makes more sense. So if we move on, so how do people try to satisfy that spiritual thirst that we all know? 
we have. Clearly, I'm not going to go through every way people do it. You'll be glad to know that. We will be here for a long time. But as we all know, I'll just focus in on the last 50 to 60 years, and as we all know, post-Second World War, um, a lot of things happened. Society changed in the 60s, didn't it? The Beatles started singing songs that were fast and rocky. Sometimes. And as part of that era, religion was kind of jettisoned, wasn't it? Become, going to church became pretty unpopular. And even today, that's the case. 10 million Australians in the last census. 10 million Australians. That's nearly one in one and a, two and a half. Um, say they have no religion at all. So that trend towards no religion has continued. And possibly the most significant factor in that trend is the, this notion that we all hear of these days, which is the autonomous thinking self as the single authority on all matters of faith, how you behave and what you need to do in your life. So rather than the acceptance as it was in before the 60s of the institutional church and an external set of moral values that somehow we had to keep up with, um, now we have a, a culture that says, I don't actually need religion to get to God. I don't need religion to get to God. Religion is seen as old hat, it's seen as something from the past, something we don't need anymore. But spirituality, more broadly, on the other hand, is increasingly seen as much more modern, isn't it? Much more contemporary, much more the thing to do. So let's have a look at them both and see if they can satisfy our spiritual thirst, shall we? So religion, and bear in mind I'm talking really broadly here. I'm not going to focus on any one particular religion. I'm just going to say what I think, broadly speaking, people think religion is. And people think, I think generally, that religion is obey the rules and God will bless you. It's about your performance. It's about your merit. See, in religion, your salvation depends on you. You better do the right thing. You run your life according to the rules. You obey first. And you hope like anything that you've done more good stuff than bad stuff and when the end comes, God weighs the scales and he says, you're in. So you earn God's favour by your own efforts. That's generally speaking how I think people think about religion. And uh, John Lennox, um, the Christian author and speaker, has a great little story that I've kind of stolen and maybe manipulated a bit, but it goes like this. And if you're a single man, now you need to listen up. In fact, you need to get your pen out and write this down because otherwise you'll be single for the rest of your life. So, and, and married men, maybe you need to listen too. You've met the woman of your dreams. She's utterly amazing. She's magnificent. You want, him, you want to marry her? 
as soon as you possibly can, if not sooner. Got it? Anyway, you ask her out on a date. And when you get to that date, you hand her a cookbook. This is your first bad mistake, but not your last of the night, right? Stay with me. You, you hand her a cookbook and you say to her, now look on page 65 of that cookbook, there's a recipe for apple pie. Now, if you make that apple pie exactly the way, and it's my favourite recipe and my, my favourite food, if you make that apple pie consistently and beautifully, exactly how it's supposed to, exactly according to the rules in that book, for the next 10 years, I will love you and accept you and you, and you can be my wife. How is that going to work for you? That will be the last time that you will talk to that wonderful, amazing woman again, won't it? Because yeah. she's not that silly. Yeah. Have you got it? Yet, yet, isn't that how most people broadly view religion? Work, 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 do the right thing, it's about me. And all of a sudden, or at some stage in the future, hope like heck that God will accept you. That's how religion is characterised. That's how we think about religion. So I'd like to say this morning that I don't think religion, in the way I'm describing it, can satisfy that inner spiritual thirst that we all have. Because religion is really all about you. Get it? It's all about you. It's all about your performance. It's all about what you can do. It's all about the rules. Primarily, it says your salvation depends on you. Spirituality, the other option, the more modern, the more contemporary thing. You might have heard it said, I'm, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Any, heard that? Seen that? Read that? I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. That's a trend born largely out of the dislike for organised religion that I talked about before. And in some cases it does believe, sorry, it does involve belief in a higher power. But generally speaking, that higher power is kind of vague, impersonal, not knowable in any real sense. So unlike organised religion, modern day spirituality has no specific God, certainly doesn't have a personal God. It has no one set of rules to follow. It has no structured leadership. It has no authoritative writings. And one of the key tenets of it is self-deification. The idea that the self is the highest good, that idea that the self is the highest good. We exist to guide ourselves, to heal ourselves and to fulfil our own desires. Beliefs are determined by you, for you and no one is going to tell you how to behave. It's very much focused on the individual, remarkably, like religion. So I'm going to ask the same question. Can that type of spirituality satisfy the yearnings of our heart? What do we think? 
Not a chance. Not a chance. Because it's a spirituality without truth. It's a spirituality without authority. You effectively sit in God's chair. You don't need to look beyond yourself for anything. C.S. Lewis said this, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find myself with a desire which no experience in this world can easily satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So to recap, we've looked at two possible explanations for the origin of our spiritual thirst, atheism, theism. We've had a look at a couple of major categories of how people go about trying to satisfy that thirst that we all know that we have. Religion, spirituality. But if C.S. Lewis is right, there must be a solution for the thirst and desire for the spiritual that nothing in this world can satisfy. So you'll be glad to know I'm on to point three. This is my last. You're still with me? Yep, good nods, people up the back, fantastic. So what can both explain and satisfy our spiritual thirst? Let's have a look at John 15, shall we? I'm really hoping, if I give you five or ten minutes, your eyes can adjust and you can read it. Okay, stay with me. This is Jesus talking, John 15. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit and while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Isn't that fantastic? That's beautiful and powerful. So let's have a look at the first five words. I am. This is the last of seven I am statements that, that we find in John. And that was well understood in, in Jesus' day. He was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be God. I am. The. Not a. Not one of many. Not if you feel like it or if you don't. You can swing in and out. 
Feel free to choose anything you like. No, the, I am the, true, true. No alternative, not a choice here, not based on people's opinions or how we feel. Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. And the imagery of a vine is used a lot in the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with that. So to the Jews that Jesus was speaking to, that symbolism was um, hit, hit home really hard. There was a golden vine over the entrance to the temple in Isaiah 5. We find in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah and in Hosea, time and time again, God calls Israel his vine. But in the Old Testament, he's not satisfied with the vine because it does not produce the fruit that God was looking for. Israel was disobedient. So what Jesus is saying here, something new is happening. He's saying he's bringing forth the fruit that Israel failed to produce. Can you see the relationship in, the, in, in John 15? God is the, the, as the vine grower. Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. Can you see the dependencies there? Us being the branches. Jesus is twice identified as the true vine. He's the life source. Jesus is the life source. No branch, in verse 4, can bear fruit by itself. The point's reinforced. You can't do anything. Religion, spirituality, anything else you try. Through your own efforts and bear good fruit. You must abide in Jesus. And I want to say it very clearly. You abide first and the fruit comes. You abide first and the fruit comes. Verse 5, apart from me you can do nothing. Religion based on our own, own efforts and spirituality with no connection to God. And Jesus will get you nowhere. We need that abiding relationship, total dependence on Christ. You see, fruit-bearing is impossible without remaining in Jesus and it's inevitable if you do. And also notice that branches that belong to Christ will bear fruit and they will undergo pruning. This will not be an easy ride as a Christian. They will undergo pruning. But that pruning is necessary. Any gardeners in the room? Yep. Is pruning necessary? You better believe it. Prune in June, that's the only thing I know. <laughs> Notice that as we progress through the eight verses, we go from more fruit to much fruit as we abide in Christ. And in verse 7, what an amazing opportunity ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you john 15 7 what an amazing opportunity god gives us so are you getting the point are, are you with me 11 times in john 15 jesus says abide or remain in him 40 times 40 times in john's gospel he says something similar and 27 times in John's epistle. Do you get it? 
that you can't do anything of value in God's kingdom without abiding first in Jesus. And verse 8 is the crux. It is to God's glory that we bear much fruit. What are we made for? What are we made for? I just want to speak quickly to the men and maybe some of the women who are handy around the house. Have you ever found yourself in a situation, I'm not saying I would ever do this, have you ever found yourself in a situation where you needed a hammer but you didn't have one at hand? Or is it just me? Yeah. And, and what did you do when the hammer was back in the shed and you were halfway up a ladder or you're too lazy to get, get out from under the sink to get that hammer? What did you do? I'll tell you what I do. I just grab the nearest thing and I hammer away. It could be a spanner, it could be the end of a screwdriver, it could be a chunk of wood that I can find. And what's the result? What is the result? It's either blood, band-aids or some sort of breakage, correct? Correct? Why? Because a hammer's designed to nail things in. Nothing else is. So the purpose of the branch on the vine is to bear fruit. Are you with me? You don't plant a vine just to have a few green leaves on it, do you? You don't do that. We have an orange tree at the front of our place. And uh, it was either Deb or I, I can't remember. It was probably me. Um, went a bit harder at one, one year and it looked pretty bad. And we stood back and thought, that thing is never going to survive. Two years later, it had so many oranges. They were literally rolling down the road and blocking the torrents. <laughs> they were seriously, we had so many, so many, in fact, that the rubbish truck driver thought he'd take pity on us. And he stopped his truck one day when he opened, you know, did his thing and got our bin and he, he snuck into our front yard and he took some oranges. He procured some and he went home with them, quite happy with that. The tree was fulfilling its purpose. The tree was fulfilling its purpose. I'm nearly there. So to recap, we've looked at what best explains our spiritual thirst. And I've made a brief case that theism, the God of the Bible, does. We looked at a couple of different ways that people try to satisfy that spiritual thirst we all know we've got. Religion, spirituality. And then we had a look at what satisfies, what is the only way we can satisfy that spiritual thirst. Verse 8 in John 15 says it all. We abide in Christ to bear good fruit, to ultimately bring glory to God. That is what we were made for. See, Christianity is unique. It doesn't compete with any other worldview. It's the love story. It's a love story of God come down in Jesus to die on a cross, to save us from our own sinfulness, and all we have to do is accept that. We don't have to earn it. We cannot ever earn it. We have to accept in faith what God has done in Christ for us. So Christianity is unique. So our spiritual thirst is indeed a broken signpost which all of us try and satisfy. 
And based on our passage today in John 15, I'd like to suggest there's only one way to satisfy our spiritual thirst. We were created to worship God. That's what John 15 is telling us. We create, that's our purpose. Created to worship God, to know Jesus intimately. He's the vine, he's the life source. To abide in him, to stay permanently with him and to have his spirit indwell in us. Then and only then will we truly satisfy our spiritual thirst. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have done it all, that there is nothing we can do that will get us into the kingdom. And once we are in your kingdom, part of your family, there's nothing that we can do that will get us kicked out of that kingdom either. Father, we thank you that your forgiveness, your grace and your mercy are endless towards us, your children. In Jesus' name. Amen.